Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today I'm very excited to have two special guests with me. Uh, we have Ibrahim Halawi, who is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway, University of London. And we also have Basil Salouk, uh, who's an associate professor of political science at the Lebanese American University. Ibrahim Basil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Ezra. Thanks for um, inviting us. Now, it's really great to have both of you on the podcast. Now, you co-authored a very interesting piece for the forthcoming issue of MELG, uh, which will be published in the next few days. And the piece is entitled Pessimism of the Intellect, Optimism of the Will, After the 17 October Protests in Lebanon. And the piece really reflects the fact that uh, beyond being academics, you're both also very politically active. So I was wondering if maybe you'd like to start today's discussion by saying a little bit about yourselves and your experiences with the protests uh, and about approaching them as both scholars and as activists. Uh, Basil, would you like to start? Yeah, yeah, sure. Fantastic question. Thank you so much. Um, so I personally was interested in the protests, both as a citizen who is living in Lebanon and who wants to practice his citizenship and demand his rights as citizen in the country, rather than as a member of a sect, which is the way the sectarian system sets things up right. in Lebanon. But, but I was also interested in it as an academic. I was primarily interested in how people contest the sectarian system. And, you know, our paper uh, takes its cue from Gramsci. And Gramsci has this beautiful line where he says, the popular element feels, but does not always know or understand. The intellectual element, he's talking about intellectuals, knows, but does not always understand. And in particular, does not always feel. So I was really interested uh, when I used to go every day, almost every day, and participate just as a, as a protester, you know, not belonging or affiliating with any group particularly. I was interested in, in seeing how this uh, movement works in the protest and in how this dense experience uh, that I uh, that I had in the protest and what I call a kind of haphazard ethnography, how can it bear on my own work and my own academic work? So it's an attempt to bridge, you know, theory and practice. Right. And I guess, you know, that, I guess what that's what we try to do in the article in, in great measure. It's an attempt to uh, think critically really about why it has been so uh, so difficult for successive waves of protests to to um, change the sectarian system? Uh, thank you, Basil. That's really interesting, and I, I really like your term uh, haphazard ethnography. That's great, um, Ibrahim. Would you like to speak to to your own experiences? Uh, yeah, I'll start off from where Basil left. <laughs> I've gi- I've given up some of the distance that I have been able to acquire as a as a as an academic in favor of being politically involved on the ground but i'm going to get back to that I'd, I'd also like to say that i am the product of a notorious famous event in in arab world history which is the arab spring right, as a scholar and a politically involved person my ideas 
well, the starting point of my engagement was the Arab Spring itself. Mm-hmm. I started um, a student movement in Beirut, in my university at LAU, where Basel teaches, uh, who himself was my <laughs> my teacher as well. And was it called the Alternative Student Movement? We were try- we were trying to sort of challenge um, the sectarian grip on student political life and on society more broadly. And from there onwards, I realized how powerful the system is. Um, and how difficult it is to challenge it, not just in Lebanon, but also I was much more interested in also in Egypt and other parts of the Arab world, how difficult it is to really untangle the state, which to us looks like a failed state, but still it manages to reproduce itself. And from there onwards, I became much more involved in the concept of counter-revolution. That's my research interest in trying to understand why things go wrong. Uh, And this paper that I'm very happy to uh, co-author with Basel, we try to zoom in a bit on Lebanon just as a starting point to a, to a much bigger research that needs to be done on on why power sharing, concession power sharing arrangements are inherently counter-revolutionary. Right. Which is a topic of a, of a very interesting article that uh, Ibrahim has recently published in Studies in Ethnicity and Nationalism. Oh, great. I can put a link to that in the podcast description. Um, now, Before we jump into your piece, I think it would be helpful to set out a little context for the October 17 protests. Uh, But maybe rather than simply recounting their events, um, maybe you could highlight some of the features of the protests that differentiated them from from other manifestations that have occurred over the past decade in Lebanon. Uh, Ibrahim, would you you like to start with this one? So yeah, broadly speaking, what distinguishes October 17 protests from previous um, events and protests is that they were nationwide and they were cross-sectarian. And they were a bit actually sustainable. I mean, they, it, it was a, a wave of protest that um, that survived a few uh, weeks or months even. But, but I would like to say that even in this cross-sectarian moment, sectarian identities were downgraded in favor of socio- socioeconomic demands, which is what makes it also special, this nationwide cross-sectarian. But it was done so under the condition that all sects have proved their non-sectarian goodwill at this specific moment. So in other words, I think what's fascinating about it is that although the the the, um, the identity was reimagined momentarily, but this incentive to reimagine identity for, for Lebanese people outside sectarianism was incentivized because they saw that the other sects, so people in other areas, were simultaneously dropping their um, sectarian identity right. in favor of this sort of reimagination that is related to socioeconomic demands. And that's one of the key features, I think, of why these protests were significant. Absolutely. I think, you know, if I may jump in. Yeah, of course. I mean, before the 17 October explosion, and, and we need to distinguish always be, between the, the first three days, the first week, and then what happened later. The question that everybody was asking uh, was, given the socioeconomic conditions in the country, where have all the protesters gone? To, to borrow the title of an essay written by a Latin Americanist on Chile. Uh, and, and really the question was, you know, how come people were not taking to the streets given how difficult the socioeconomic conditions had reached? The, and, you know, th- this was the period when the, the central bank and the banks had started uh, some control policies on, on what you can, uh, the amount of money you can take out in dollars and so on. And so we have to put then 17 October in a longer context, which you can say 
begins even with uh, 2011. And Lebanon did witness its version of uh, the people want to bring down the regime. But in, in the case of Lebanon, it was the sectarian regime. And then this happens again in, in 2015. I remember very clearly, where, you know, I, I had a graduate seminar on that day uh, in the afternoon. And I remember I was walking into my graduate seminar and one of my graduate students told me, did you hear the news? I said, what news? He said, they've just decided to tax what's up. And the feeling then was that this is going to cause an explosion. And so, so the, the structural conditions, and in Lebanon is not unique here, the structural conditions were ready for something to happen. It just took a trigger. And the trigger in this case was the WhatsApp, WhatsApp tax. Uh, interesting. Thank you. And, and just to set out a little bit more context, um, I wonder if it would be possible to say a little bit about how the sectarian system in Lebanon has mitigated against mobilization in previous protests. I mean, the whole idea of the sectarian system, particularly in the post-war period, is to preclude the kind of alternative political organization that can contest the sectarian system. And so what you saw this very clearly in the post-war period is how the post-war sectarian political elite made sure that they colonized all avenues of uh, organization that could potentially become sources of alternative politics. So whether it's the labor unions, the professional syndicates, the public sector unions, wherever you could imagine opposition, alternative opposition politics to come to the sectarian system, they, they colonized it and neutralized it. And that, I think, goes a long way towards explaining why resistance has been haphazard, why often it has been useless. Uh, and, and that also explains just the, the power of the sectarian system, despite the weakness of uh, state institutions. Great. And that leads perfectly into the focus of your Melg article. Uh, and I wanted to start with an interesting passage that you include early on where you say, it seemed that in a historic moment laden with possibilities, a taboo was broken and that people across artificially erected sectarian barricades had finally reimagined their national community and sources of misery and deprivation away from sectarian othering. But imagining is one thing, and real political change is an altogether different challenge. Uh, Ibrahim, I was wondering if you could sort of speak to what accounted for the space between the imagining and the actual political change. Yeah, that is exactly the essence of uh, what we're trying to unpack here. Um, and I think what accounts for this space is that sectarianism has distorted the very essence of politics and political life, which is usually, initially, is about the organization of individuals behind a perceived common interest or vision that responds to a specific way of allocating resources. In other words, politics is meant to be about organizing in groups that contend over how to manage resources at a given time for a specific population. But sectarianism by nature has instead produced unhealthy, inorganic forms of political participation that makes sect-based organization of individuals the exclusive form of organization. So it takes sectarian organization for granted. And all other forms of organization become intruder to this kind of politics and hence fail to find a place. So in that sense, non-sectarian individuals who have showed up predominantly in the streets in October 17, refuse to organize for many reasons, but we think that 
at this stage, partly because they have developed a phobia because of this unhealthy history in the form in which political parties were formed and the role they've played, but also, and to give them some credit, possibly just out of uh, curiosity thinking about it, also consider that they might have understood their role as individuals as itself a rejection to this kind of politics. So they've they understand their critical individualism in showing up in the streets as individuals and in, in making statements as individuals as a rejection to this kind of politics. Well, this is where we try to jump in. We're saying mm -hmm. that despite understanding all of this, if the aim is political change, if this is the objective, then these individuals, these this particularly this new generation, the youth, if they do not come to terms with the fact that organization is inevitable, then there's a vicious cycle here of them presenting their rejection to this very distorted version of politics without being able to play any part in changing it. Uh, great. Uh, Basil, would you like to add anything to that? No, absolutely. I think Brahim summed the, the puzzle really very, very, very nicely. And I think what he is describing helps us understand some of the abnormalities or strange situations that you saw in the, uh, in the protest, in the sense that the protests were all-inclusive uh, and brought people from different uh, classes, regions, but also political affiliations. And some people who may otherwise identify with a certain, with a, with a certain sect felt that they should also be represented in these process. I think what this means is that the, the, the sectarian system uh, distorts the incentive structure. Sure. And this has something to do with why a lot of these new groups shied away from political organization because they thought or they believed that political organization means that somehow the sectarian system or the political elite will find a way to co-opt you. This, I think, was largely a consequence of the experience of 2015, the garbage crisis. But it, is, it was the fear that any kind of organizational uh, coherence would expose you to the sectarian elite. There is a, there is a section in the paper where we describe someone like Kamal Hamdan, who belongs to a very different generation than the youth that were mobilizing uh, this time around. But it was so dramatic to see this clash of, you know, ways of dealing with, with opposition. For him, it was very important to organize very early on and to agree on a set of principles. And by that, he, he represented, you know, the kind of old guard, uh, leftist uh, groups in Lebanon. For the new groups, organization was anathema because it meant that somebody is using power against someone else, somebody is committing violence against someone else, and, some, and somebody is exposing the protest to some kind of cooptation. And I think today we are paying the price of the mistakes that were made uh, in those very early days of, of the protest, this, this clash of visions as to how you move the protest forward and you try to make them able to achieve certain uh, goals and objectives. Having said this, I mean, one should not blame everything on the protesters. As, I, as we were saying earlier and as we argue in the, in the paper, uh, 
it is in the very nature of the sectarian system to distort uh, organizational incentives and political economic incentives. It's, it's incredibly difficult to invent these just like that out of nothing. That is really the, the core of the problem that we're facing in Lebanon today in, in terms of organizational work and structures. Uh, great. And Ibrahim, um, given your work on counter-revolution, maybe you would like to speak to the extent to which this is a, a reactive response from the regime or the extent to which it's proactive or um, preemptive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and that's another key point. So on one hand, we have, as we said, the very nature of sectarianism distorting the kind of politics we're talking about. But on the other hand, sectarianism is not just about that sort of cultural or meaning of politics. It's also about structural, systemic, counter-revolutionary phenomena. And let me just define quickly what I mean here by counter-revolution so that we can put it in perspective. So counter-revolution is not strictly a reactive phenomena, despite the fact that the term itself sounds like it is. It is indeed about countering revolution, but its manifestation sometimes preempts revolution or co-opts prospective revolutionary actors. So it, it represents the contentious politics that produces vast inequalities in wealth and power in any society. And these sort of contentious politics are often done silently, passively, not in, on, on TV. So it's systematic. It's conscious, right? These people are consciously trying to increase their wealth and power. So this is basically the phenomenon which, unfortunately, only in very rare instances in history, it becomes very blatant because of this sort of emergence of revolutionary intensification. And this is where it becomes interesting in Lebanon, because revolutions are usually a struggle over the state. But as Basel have accentuated, sectarianism has really replaced the state. Uh, there is a, the, the, in the absence of this, it becomes very difficult to understand. This reflects on the mistakes early on in protests and the clash of visions. So how do you deal with such a counter-revolution that has not really emerged in a very clear state form, but instead has replaced the state in the way it mismanages and allocates resources towards its sects. So how do you actually challenge it? In what form and uh, on the ground? Yeah, uh, I want to jump in because I think we're living now a very important example that pertains really to this issue, which is how do you bring about change uh, in the context of the sectarian system and in the context of a situation where the state, and, and here I want to invoke Gramsci, because, because, of course, Gramsci is the hero of the piece, particularly the work he did on the importance of organizational work if one wants to contest the ideological hegemony, in his case, of capitalism, in our case, sectarianism. But there is another part to Gramsci which I think sets him apart in political science, and that is how he looks at the state as political economy and in, in, in the way in which Lebanon's political economy was used by the post-war sectarian elite to reproduce uh, and intensify sectarian identities and types of mobilization with, with all the disastrous fiscal, financial, banking uh, consequences that we are living today. But today, the, the, today, there is a very interesting argument in the country relating to the port explosion. And how do you hold people accountable? How do you hold ministers or what have you, uh, officials accountable? 
And again, this goes back to this issue that is very important in political science. You know, how do you develop something like rule of law? And, and what we are witnessing today in Lebanon is, again, this problem of who will fight the fight for uh, accountability? Who will fight the fight for rule of law? It's very difficult simply because, to reiterate this issue, it is in the very nature of the sectarian system in Lebanon, but also, I would say, of Iraq, to ensure that those agents, those actors, those groups who would intuitively one would look at to lead the battle for accountability and for change are colonized and subdued by the sectarian political system. So whether it is the, the, the labor movements, whether it is professional syndicates, what have you, these have been colonized from within. And so this is why today you see the battle on the issue of the port and the need for accountability being led primarily by a kind of an alternative judges movement, the, the judges club, which, which, which has positioned itself against the establishment. It is also being uh, waged by... Uh, the lawyer syndicate, which after October was able, at least the one in Beirut, was able to uh, win some kind of autonomy from the political establishment. So this goes again to the core of this issue of how do you bring about change when the agents that should champion change in society have been domesticated? Uh, very interesting. And and in addition to this sectarian aspect of the Gramscian dilemma around organization that you discuss in the article, um, you also emphasize the role of NGOs and the NGOization of civil society um, and the impact that it's had on uh, the political mobilization in Lebanon and also in other sectarian contexts. Um, Ibrahim, I wonder if you could speak a little to the impact of NGOs and their involvement um, in the October 17 protests. Right. So, so, so building on what Basel, how Basel described the, how sectarianism has colonized the state, when crises like the port explosion happen, and this is historical in Lebanon, you see how non-governmental organizations sort of play the role or attempt to play the role, at least symbolically at a very minimal scale, the role of the state. They try to help um, in emergencies. They support people in need. So this has been the case in Lebanon. And the more the state has been dissolved of its meaning, thanks to sectarianism, the more NGOs have found a role to play in society. But the problem in a political context is that despite the fact that NGOs are doing some incredible work at a societal level, they sometimes, at critical political moments, assume a much bigger role than they actually can uh, play. So in other words, they punch above their weight. Now, this is dangerous, even from a Gramscian perspective, because if NGOs start to claim that they are the opposition, the political opposition, there's a structural contradiction here. Because structurally, the role of NGOs and their very survival relies on the inequalities and the absence of the state. Right? This is how they find their money, their grants, their support internationally and locally. So assuming that they are the forces behind political change means that they are fighting against their very own survival. Um, so this is a structural contra contradiction, which means that either the key figures in this growing, mushrooming NGO sector, thanks to the millions of dollars that are being channeled into this sector, these leaders of the sector, they're either being 
naive about their role in society, so they're exaggerating without really understanding what political change really means, or they are actually malevolent. Um, so they are trying to exaggerate the role in order to have much bigger influence in society. In both cases, this is problematic. The other side of NGO that is problematic from a very Gramscian position is that those who are economically autonomous from the political economy of sectarianism are the ones that usually afford to challenge it. And most of these people are the youth. But because of the big amount of money that is being channeled to uh, non-governmental organizations, and it's becoming really an economic sector, most of these economically autonomous young people are finding jobs in the sector. And therefore, from a political economy perspective, they are also being domesticated in a sense. They are being pacified rather than domesticated. Um, by the very nature of that, their activism, their effort of activism is now a nine to five job, right? So there's a time scale and it's, it's linked to a, to a project, to a grant. And so it's a very much a symbolic really role in political life rather than a full-time political project uh, that is usually a volunteering uh, effort that is not tied to an employer-employee sort of relationship or to money from outside or any project. So in that sense, the, 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 the essence of change, the agents of change, as Basel mentioned, other than the institution, but now we're talking about society, they are also being, in a way, um, domesticated to the, thanks to the, to, the, to the mushrooming sector of the NGO, which itself turns poverty and injustices into a norm, right? We say that it exists and therefore we just need money to be able to contain it and mitigate it. And, I, and I'm really inspired here in my, problem, my critique of the role of NGO uh, by the work of um, Escobar. Uh, Arturo Escobar, who really unpacks the role of NGOs in development, in the making and unmaking of the third world, as he says it. So there's an, a comparative element to it as well. Oh, great. And Basil, would you like to jump in there as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if we look at this from a comparative perspective, and and uh, and you know, despite contextual differences, but when you look at, for example the experiences of Tunisia, Sudan, uh, places in the Arab world where some kind of a transition to democracy has happened. It's very interesting that in those cases, uh, in the case of Sudan, economic crisis spurs civil society organizations to, to organize outside the control of, of, of the regime. Huh? And in that case, it was the professional syndicates the neighborhood popular committees that use the economic crisis to mobilize people against the regime. In the case of Tunisia, the labor unions after the uprising were were able very quickly to reboot themselves and provide some kind of organizational structure. And in both cases, they come with a history, these organizations. They come with a legacy. They know how to do this kind of organizational work. Uh, and they have proper structures and leaders and so on that allow you to give opposition uh, a structure and an endpoint and to negotiate with the regime or elements of the regime and, and so on. In Lebanon, because labor unions or professional syndicates and so on are colonized, co-opted by the sectarian system, Economic crisis gives uh, rise to survival strategy. And this is where NGOs become inserted the way Ibrahima is talking about them. And, you know, you cannot blame them because, I mean, what do you say? Do you tell the world, don't 
don't bring money or don't distribute money to those who need it. You cannot tell them that. But they operate in a very distorted institutional structure, which, whether they like it or not, ends up benefiting those in power. And again, this takes us back to the issue of how do you do organizational work that has a purpose and that can uh, can uh, challenge uh, the sectarian system and the political elite. And it's not easy. This is not an easy question. And it, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do in the context of the kind of economic crisis that we are going through these days. Right. And I guess the difficulty here is, um, as Gramsci emphasizes, you need this sort of contextually sensitive modes of, of cooperation. Absolutely, yeah. And that might be quite complex within the Lebanese context. Well, in a sense, the, the question then becomes, who are you fighting and for what purpose? I mean, Gramsci understood the puzzle of the survival, the durability of capitalism in, in the West, despite its violence and its injustices and its injury. And the question that he wanted to answer is, you know, well, what do we do if historical determinism is not the answer, then how do you bring about change? And for him, and of course, he was influenced here by Lenin, well, you have to organize the prince, uh, the modern prince, the party. You have to become part of a movement with its organic intellectuals and that can create alliances between different sectors of society. And part of this organizational work uh, allows you to develop a certain critical consciousness and so on. The, the problem in Lebanon is that you want you have to do all this in light speed and in the context of the Titanic sinking. How you can do this, I think, has been the greatest challenge for new organizational groups, but also old ones that are trying to challenge the, uh, the system. It's 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 very difficult. And within this complex organizational and state environment, you emphasize the emergence of Muwatanun wa Muwatanat fi I wonder if you could provide some background information on this this new party. Yeah, um, so Muwatanun wa Muwatanat fi in English means citizens in a state. Um, it's a political party that emerged after the uh, garbage crisis protests in 2015, which Basel alluded to earlier. So the um, the context was really this moment in which the NGO Alliance, so a group of um, resourceful non-governmental organizations, they called for protests against um, the mismanagement the, the, the mismanagement of waste by the sectarian political system, with an inflated slogan around how they are no longer legitimate. I mean, the political elite are no longer legitimate. So this attracted a lot of people, massive crowds, something unprecedented really in post-war Lebanon. But then typically because of all the things we've just mentioned about the structural contradictions of the role that these um, um, organizations are trying to play, nothing really materialized. They couldn't really change the balance of power. And one of the key Positional figures um, in civil society, um, Sharban Nahans, who was a former labor minister, and he's, a, he's an established economist as well. So he was really um, early on critiquing and criticizing the way in which the NGOs were trying to organize this opposition. And in the wake of this failure, he decided to, among other uh, group of established uh, position figures, to 
really form a political party, learning from not only his own experiences in government, but also through his scholarly work on, on the political economy of Lebanon, and then also in this moment of on-the-ground failure to, to change the balance of power. So this was the, the moment. So Citizens in a, in a State Party is not the product of some sort of revolutionary momentum or hopeful moment, something like the October 9, uh, 17 protests in Lebanon. It's actually the product of a revelation or an awareness or reckoning that the country on an economic level is heading towards collapse because Sharbel was one of the early economists that warned and wrote about the imminent collapse of the very unsustainable economic model that emerged after the civil war. So it was this specific revelation and also a reckoning from the other side that a segment of society has to really organize itself and prepare for this moment to be able to transition society. Um, to use to seize the opportunity of the collapse of the sectarian economic model to transform society from where it is now into what this political party believes is the civil state as a solution, as an end solution um, to the crisis. And just to give a, a broad speaking about this objective of the civil state, the objective is really that we need to not only bring back the meaning of politics, we've, we've mentioned how sectarianism have distorted politics, so we need to bring back the meaning of politics. And the meaning of political life is really in transforming the relationship between those who rule society in the form of a state and those who are ruled. Under sectarianism, there was always this middleman, sectarian party, sectarian elite, who decide how resources are allocated via state institutions, sometimes, sometimes informally, but therefore, the citizens of, of Lebanon, they were, no, they were never really, they never found themselves in the role of a citizen because their access to resources was always conditional upon them being sectarian subjects, reproducing their loyalty to this mid, sectarian middleman. So this party suggests that the, 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 by, by forming um, a, a state that is civil, then we get rid of this middleman and instead people, be it sectarian or otherwise, so non-sectarian and sectarian people, would be able to access resources as citizens. And therefore, the grip that sectarian political life has on the socioeconomic reality of society becomes really um, void, obsolete. And the civil state, in essence, therefore, um, reproduces the meaning of life, uh, political life, but also, more importantly, uh, shapes the, uh, reshapes the economic model into something much more productive into an economic model that is sustainable into a political system and and policy making that serves the people as people as society rather than as sectarian communities and sectarian tribes can can i jump in yeah of course Pastor. yeah i think i mean following up on what brahim uh, said and of course brahim is, is speaking as an activist here because he is part of that movement. Uh, but if, if I may talk as an academic looking at this from the outside, I think what's, what's really great about uh, Mamafed are, are two things. In addition to, the, to what Brahim has just mentioned, one, you need to have an alternative on the table. You need to, you need to project an alternative so that people can start thinking about alternatives to the hegemony of sectarianism. But I think, I think the other thing which is so important here is that what, what Mamafat does is they bring the state back in to borrow 
the title of the famous uh, book. But it's not the neo-Weberian state of Scotchpool and Michael Mann and so on. This is, again, the state as political economy. Because it is the post-war state as political economy, which has played an instrumental role in uh, reproducing sectarian identities and making people think, again, to borrow from Gramsci, that sectarianism is, is, is common sense. And it is the only, uh, the only game in town. I think that's very important because uh, for the longest time, this debate, this discussion on the state as political economy was sidelined. And what Mamafad ha- ha- has done is that they've said, we are a political movement who want to prioritize remaking the political economy of Lebanon, because that's really the only way uh, you can get out from the sectarian system and, more importantly, challenge the sectarian system. The other thing which is related, it's, it's about Mamafed challenging up front this dilemma that all opposition groups in the Arab world, but also beyond, have faced is, well, how do you change the state and politics if you don't want to get into the state, if you don't want to engage the state that you disagree with? And they are, again, very upfront on this. They want the state. They want to get into the state so that they can transform the political economy of the state that has led to all the disastrous consequences that we are living today. Right. And the ambition to, to enter the state and its institutions, is that, um, is that the party seeking sort of a slow incremental change? Uh, or is it hoping for sort of a starker shift away from, from the sectarian paradigm? Well, that's a very good point and a, and a good question because um, it's both. <laughs> and in a way now, given the circumstances, and again, I uh, just to point out also what Basel mentioned, I'm speaking now as also a member of the political party, not just as a scholar. We believe that this moment, this collapse, and the beautiful Basel, the metaphor that he always mentions, the Titanic that is sinking, requires immediate and urgent um, transformation in the way in which the country is being governed. So there is that sort of urgency on one hand. So we have a plan into how to deal with this emergency, how to actually save society in a sense from the very nature of of sectarianism that is incapable by nature to overcome this, um, this sinking. But on the other hand, we do believe that the emergence of the formation of a civil state, which, as Basel pointed out, is really about the reformation of the political economy of Lebanon, this has to be incremental for many reasons. I'll just point out two key reasons. The first thing is that our reading of sectarianism is that it's primarily a political economy. Right. So it's a very good, in a very gumption sense as well. These are relationships in society, and they are mostly economic relationships that then form relationships of power. And therefore, most of society has some sort of stake in the existing political economy. A very, very blatant example of that is what Basel um, studies in his previous work on the role of the public sector in reproduction of sectarianism, on how the public sector was used to recruit a vast amount of, of people and therefore create this sort of clientelist network. So you cannot overnight pursue the collapse of sectarianism because with the collapse of sectarianism comes the, uh, the loss of a huge number of jobs that rely on the sectarian system. And therefore, the, the transition from a sectarian system into a civil state with a productive political economy 
requires a very incremental process of really understanding the size of the losses, which we still don't know really because of the sectarian system, and the size of the population. We have not done a census in Lebanon since 1932. So to understand the needs, the strengths, the weaknesses, the losses, and the wealth of this nation and act upon it incrementally to be able to transition society from being highly reliant on an unproductive political economy into finding jobs that are productive in an emerging, really sustainable economic model. And, and to do all this in the context of a consociational political system that has mutated into what John Nagel calls zombie power sharing, whereby the body politic is dead, and yet you cannot reform it. It's, it's resistant to reform. And, we can, and nothing captures this dilemma more than the inability of the political elite today, the sectarian political elite, to form a government when the country is, is collapsing financially, uh, economically, environmentally, public health crisis, and so on. So you have to do all the things that Brahim was talking about. But first, you have to get over is a zombie power sharing system in Lebanon, a consociational system in Lebanon, where it is dead, but nobody wants to bury it. And yet, and nobody knows how to, uh, or, or nobody from within the political elite wants to reform it as well. Right. And in terms of the economic crisis that you mentioned, um, could you say a little bit about its impacts on the sectarian system? And also what is the strategy of the sectarian elite um, to sustain themselves through this collapse? Um, first of all, the elite, uh, we need to disaggregate the elite. The different parts of the sectarian elite have different interests and different stakes. But what is clear is that when faced with the need to drastically overhaul the uh, political economic system, the, the way politics is done, when faced with, as the World Bank and the IMF keep telling them in all their meetings, keep telling the representatives of the political, uh, of the sectarian elite that you need to engage in deep structural reforms in the economy, in the bureaucracy, and so on, their strategy so far has been to just buy more time and to divert attention from the sins that they committed early on, in the, early in the post-war uh, period, that, that avalanched with the debt and led to the collapse we are living in today. So my greatest fear is that they know that the, the oppos opposition to them is not as organized as their own followers are organized, and that's because their followers have been feeding from this political economy and from these clientelistic networks that they created and that at worst what they can what they can do is that they can take us to a situation where uh, those who can can no longer sustain living in Lebanon will just leave they will they will vote with their feet they will leave and those who are here want the minimal levels of security and everyday uh, survival. So it's a diversionary tactic, one that they have mastered during the civil war. Uh, and what it ends up doing, it, uh, it means inviting a collapse that would allow them to stay on top of what is a ruined uh, country. Really. Uh, interesting. Um, 
Ibrahim, would you like to add anything to Basil's comments? Um, so yeah, building on 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 Basil's very grim reading, which is very sensible as well of of um, of the future of of this country, um, unless <laughs> unless people organize politically, which is the call we're trying to make over a very clear political alternative. Um, we do see that we do see sectarian political elite as people who are very comfortable with securitizing politics. They they created the legitimacy. They emerged out of the moment of the civil war. Their very legitimacy is built on the ruins of the state, and therefore their ability to reproduce the legitimacy to survive also relies on them securitizing the crisis itself, the, uh, the financial and uh, economic crisis. So it's very likely that we will see what is left of society, because as Vassal mentions, the middle class, the people who are able and willing, they will leave the country. But what is left of society, we will see them standing in long queues in front of sectarian political parties, branches waiting for very basic I mean, support and aid, as well as queuing in front of NGOs trying to get what they need. Um, and this, again, is the fate of a society that succumbed to the cynicism of sectarianism and would have failed by then to bring back meaning to political life, which requires people to come together as groups to be able to change, to tilt the balance of power. Well, although uh, a bit bleak, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today. So, Ibrahim, Basil, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really been very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Ezra. Appreciate it. Brian. Brahim, thank you so much. Always inspiring. Likewise, Vassal. Mentor. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you both uh, again. And thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Lawn Governance Podcast.
Yeah. 